for Advent, we are walking through the prologue of the gospel according to John. So if you still have your finger in your Bible where Russell read, all you need to do is turn back a page, and we're going to read the first 13 verses. So last week, Chris Elliott kicked us off with the first five verses. I'm going to just read those for context, and then we are going to look at verses 6 to 13 this morning. So John chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're going to look at verses 6 to 13 this morning, verse 14 on its own next Sunday, and then verses 15 to 18 on Christmas Eve morning, all right? So this morning, verses 6 to 13, and just a little setup here. I'm going to probably step on some toes here um, in my introduction, but you'll get over it, Um, and I love you. So how many of you are familiar with Hallmark movies? Okay. Most of you, or you're not admitting that you are familiar. So if you're not familiar, if you're not familiar, because I did see some hands that were not raised, so allow me to summarize every Hallmark movie plot. So there's a woman who has a high-paying job as a busy advertising executive in a big city, probably New York City, who's left her empty, you know, this job has left her empty and a little cold inside. She doesn't have time for Christmas or holidays or even getting home to be with her family, but wait, there's an emergency. Back home at the family Christmas tree farm. Um, So she comes back. You're laughing because you know. Um, But she can't afford this kind of time away from her busy advertising executive job in the big city. She needs to get back to work and her high-powered financier boyfriend who's about to propose. But then, oh no, there's a blizzard that keeps her from leaving. And then she gets caught up in the drama of trying to save the day in the small town and the Christmas tree farm, you know, from going under and whatnot. And then she runs into Mark, or he's probably got another name in one of the other iterations. They went to high school together, and he always annoyed her, but he's vital to saving the day um, for the above emergency, and she has to work with him on it, which is kind of annoying at first. 
Slowly she learns that her big city, high-powered, go, go, go lifestyle is not it's all, all it's cracked up to be, and small-town, airbrushed life is so much more real and meaningful. And she realizes she has fallen for Mark. And then they have a playful snowball, playful snowball fight in the town square after the Christmas tree farm is saved. And as they playfully fall to the ground in the glistening snow, our previously uptight heroine will inevitably say, either here in the town square, or maybe in a cozy living room with a fire crackling and a sparkly tree, and perhaps a warm mug of hot chocolate in her hand. This is where, this is where I've wanted to be all along. And everyone lives happily ever after. Cue the Christmas music and roll the credits. Okay? So just like so much Christmas chocolate, it's quantity over quality. Don't send me any nasty emails. You can, <laughs> you can watch one of these saccharine stories every night of the week starting before Thanksgiving, I think. Um, they've got to film like six or eight of these at a time in like a month in the same town, you know, because you see the same restaurant or bakery, the same house, the same town square, and most importantly, the same Christmas-themed gazebo in the town square, and maybe with the same ice creating rink in half of the movies. All right. So actually, in my research, uh, I found, <laughs> I fa thankfully not too much research, I found that for the 2020 holiday season, Hallmark cooked up 40, 40 new movies for just that season, which adds credence to my theory. Okay, anyway, so the plots are canned, full of tropes, right? They're too simplistic. They're totally predictable. We won't talk about the acting. What I will say, and the funny thing is, if you were here Friday night, Chris kind of began the ends of the earth worship night with some similar thoughts. We hadn't even talked about this. And anyway, um, so it's a little bit more of the same. But what I'll say is that many people relate to Christmas like many of us relate to Hallmark movies. And actually, regardless of how you... So, so here's, here's what I mean. Like, many people hate Christmas, and many people love Christmas. Many people hate Hallmark movies. Many people love Hallmark movies. They hate, if they hate it, they hate the sentimentality. Life is too complex and harsh. Or they love the sentimentality, maybe because they've lived a sheltered life, but sometimes precisely because life is too complex and harsh and an escape to something simpler and happily ever after is a welcome reprieve. Don't you wish life was simpler? So regardless of how you feel about Hallmark movies, and actually, regardless of how you feel about Christmas as a season, the first advent, the coming of Jesus as a baby, the incarnation, the word made flesh. First Advent is not a Hallmark movie. It's not like one of those plots. It's darker. It's more complex. It's more surprising. But it's way more wonderful. And there is hope. It really does end happily ever after. In fact, the, the early church in, or the church, I should say, Historically, as it has celebrated Advent as part of the church calendar, has focused just as much on the second Advent as the first Advent. 
that's when all of this dark, complex, broken mess is going to be made completely new. And every tear is going to be wiped away and all things um, made new. So our passage, the second in a series of four, through John 1, 1 to 18, begins actually with a wild man in the wilderness who basically wore a burlap sack and ate locusts. See, way more interesting than a Hallmark movie. Those details are not found in John's account, so we won't focus on those, um, but we start with John the Baptist, all right? So first point, the witness in verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not John that wrote the gospel. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness. Literally, he came for witness. The activity is even more important than, you know, a title. He came for witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, if you stop and think about it, the prologue of the gospel, according to John, is like such a like dense, super big deal. And maybe it's, if we stop to think about it, it's a little bit surprising that John even made it in. Like, why even mention John? Like, there's enough to say about the word made flesh. So, maybe a little strange, but this gospel, the gospel, I mean, you know, it's all about Jesus. Why do we need to talk about John? Right? But we shouldn't blow right by this. It's here for a reason. You can see how his presence and witness raised anticipation. If you think about, you know, the various gospel accounts, you put them all together, um, we can see how John the Baptist's presence, his witness, raised anticipation of what was about to happen. I mean, he was a significant figure. He had to tamp down questions of whether he was the Messiah, right? Remember, John's birth was miraculous. His mother was way past childbearing age. An angel appeared to Zechariah, who was a priest. You know, he comes out, he's mute. Angel told him that his wife was going to bear a son. This is in Luke 1, 12 to 17. He will be great before the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He goes, you know, Zechariah questions how he could know this. He goes mute until the day of John's birth. So even though Zechariah would have had to tell the story by writing on a tablet or, you know, writing in the dirt or something, you can imagine how word got around and the anticipation just built as Elizabeth approached the day of delivery and then as this boy grew up. And once he did, he became this fiery prophetic voice that attracted a ton of attention and a significant following. So look at John 1.15. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Again, there's that witness word there in verse 15. <clears throat> and then down to verse 19. And this is the testimony, that's the same witness word actually, the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. 
And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Deuteronomy 18, 15 prophesied this prophet to come. He said, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So even though he says, I'm not the Messiah, the fact that he says, I'm the voice in Isaiah 40, is like, whoa, God's going to show up. He's coming. He's going to visit us. This is a huge deal. John answered in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The lowest job of a slave, I'm not even worth, worthy of doing that. John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's witnessing. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In the Gospel of John, this idea of witness is just happening over and over again. You can see it again particularly in, with regard to John the Baptist in chapter 5. We don't have time to go there, but verses 31 to 37. So this man was sent from God. Okay? See it there? In verse 6, there was a man sent from God. Again, we've heard this so many times. That's crazy. That's wild. That's wonderful. John was literally sent by God. He's on a mission from God. His mission was not of his own making, not of human origin. It's of divine origin. John came and was sent for witness. That was his purpose on planet Earth. So even in just, as, just verses 6 to 8, we see the word witness three times, and it shows up a bunch more, like I mentioned. The question that we should ask, though, is, what is a witness, and what's a witness for? Why would the light... You know, this is like the true light coming into the world. Why would the light need someone to shine light on it? Well, certainly the text itself makes it clear. He was to bear witness to the light for belief, that everyone might believe. John's very existence, his purpose, was so that people would believe in Jesus. You know, elsewhere he says, I must decrease, he must increase. Chapter 3. So God sent John ahead of Jesus, and it was all aimed at helping us believe. Which aligns completely with John the Apostle's purpose for writing this gospel. Right? Chapter 20, verse 31. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, a few more thoughts on this idea of witness and the purpose of it. Leon Morris um, has some insightful things that I ran across this week, and it's a little bit of an extended quote, but I think it's worth quoting. All right? So in this gospel, here's what he writes. In this gospel, there are seven who bear witness to Jesus. Each of the three persons of the Trinity does this. 
and he mentions different texts where the Father bears witness to the Son, Christ himself bears witness, and the Spirit bears witness. The works of Jesus bear witness to who he is, as does sacred scripture. A sixth witness is John the Baptist, which we've just read about, while the seventh is the variety of human witnesses consequent on the ministry of Jesus, that of the disciples, the Samaritan woman, and the multitude. And then he says this, this emphasis on testimony or witness should not be minimized. Testimony is a serious matter, and the means of substantiating the truth of a matter. There is a legal air about it. It is clear that our author wants his readers to take what he writes as reliable. He is insistent that there is good evidence for the things he sets down. Witness establishes the truth. And then he says it does more. It commits. If I take my stand in the witness box and testify that such and such is the truth of the matter, I am no longer neutral. I have committed myself. John lets us see that there are those like John the Baptist who have committed themselves by their witness to Christ, but he is also bold enough to think that God has committed himself. He has borne witness in a variety of ways, but he has especially committed himself in Jesus, in all that the Son was and did. People who have borne their witness have committed themselves, and that is not to be overlooked. But the important thing is the witness of God. And then in a footnote, he quotes a guy who writes this. To be a witness is to act as a guarantor. Every testimony is based on a commitment. And to be incapable of committing oneself is to be incapable of bearing witness. This is indeed the reason for the preliminary oath, which is administered in a law court. By taking the oath, I bind myself. I give up the possibility of withdrawing myself, as it were, from what I have said. So the bottom line is, John came to give witness that you and I might believe, might commit, and then that you and I might give witness. So John the Baptist and John the Apostle are giving witness. Obviously, they are all in because this is true. And they are writing and speaking so that we would believe, so that we would commit. And ultimately, we are to join this great cloud of witnesses to commit. Like, so if you make it known that you're a Christian in your work, there's kind of like no going back, right? Or in your neighborhood. Because you've kind of said, I'm, I believe this. So again, the goal of this gospel is certainty and assurance and belief, but we also it's not just for no reason. We believe that we might commit and follow Jesus and also be witnesses to the light. So John came to give a witness to the light. Um, so let's look at point number two, the light. The light that he came to give witness to. Verse nine. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So when we read this, the true light here in verse nine, that adjective true can mean genuine, but it could also kind of shade into meaning ultimate, okay? The fact that there's the true light 
doesn't mean that all others were false, okay? For instance, the manna in the wilderness, that was real bread, not fake or false bread. I mean, it was miraculous bread, strange bread, but it was real. But Jesus is the true bread, the ultimate bread, right? Like, you're going to eat this, and you're going to get hungry again, but this is the ultimate bread. He's the bread of life. Or we read in Psalm 119 that the law is the lamp, is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. That's a true light. It's a true lamp, but it all points to and shines on the, the ultimate light, the ultimate self-disclosure of God. So the law was true, but it was provisional. It wasn't ultimate, which is why Jesus said to the Jews in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So all other lights, even the best lights, are mere candles compared to the sun, the blazing sun, or you could say moons to the sun. So this light that was coming in is the true, genuine, ultimate light. I mean, there certainly have been plenty of false lights. You know, many have claimed to be the light. Imitation lights leading people astray, will-o'-the-wisps, you know, leading people into the darkness. This light, the true and ultimate life, light, gives light to everyone. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus somehow shines in every human heart um, subjectively is this inner illumination that's in view? No. It's also most likely not just kind of general revelation, although that's true. I mean, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Um, you know, Romans 1 speaks of this. You know, God makes his um, eternal power known in creation. I think D.A. Carson um, says it well, shed some light on the subject, um, pun intended there. Uh, when he says this, what is at stake is the objective revelation. It shines on every man and divides the race. Those who hate the light respond as the world does. They flee, lest their deeds should be exposed by this light. But some receive this revelation and thereby testify that their deeds have been done through God. In John's gospel, it is repeatedly the case that the light shines on all and forces a distinction. Okay, we find a good illustration of this in John 9. Remember when Jesus heals the blind man? And Jesus says to the Pharisees, who are all up in arms because he, you know, healed the blind man here. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. So here this blind man now sees. But then these, these spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, who thought that they saw, they're actually being blinded by the light. So he's shining on everyone, and it's forcing a division. Okay, So the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. So in 1, 1 to 5, <clears throat> the Son of God is referred to as the Word of God, right? And then we read in verse 5 that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. But this light doesn't just kind of shine down like, you know, those searchlights that can go and like shine up into the sky like the Batman symbol, you know, or something like that. It doesn't like 
It's not like a reverse Batman thing where it, boom, beam out, coming out of heaven and like, it's not that. This true light was actually coming into the world. Obviously, incarnation, word became flesh. The light came into the world. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, again, this is pointing at such good, shocking, mind-boggling, good news of the incarnation. Like, wonder of wonders, God in the flesh, incarnate deity. Like, wouldn't you think we'd just be like, roll out the red carpet? I mean, let's just flock to the light, right? Well, obviously not. Point number three, the rejection, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, so the light was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So the purpose of John's witness was that all might believe, right? But that's not what happened. Many rejected him. And the true light was in the world. And not only did we not know him, not only did we not recognize him, his own people didn't receive him. So this was not a fleeting visit. You know, he's in the world. He lived among us. The world owes its very existence to the word, just like we saw last week in verse 2. The creator of the earth walked on earth among us, yet we didn't know him. But it gets worse than just lack of recognition. Verse 11, he came to his own, speaking of the Jews, the chosen people of the covenants. John the Apostle roots this coming, this advent of the light in history. You know, he's not, when he talks about light, he's, he doesn't leave it up in kind of abstract philosophical speculation categories. He's talking about a real human person in history. He came to his own people. And that phrase, to his own, is used elsewhere, of coming home. So he came to his home, to his people. And rather than a grand reception, no ticker tape, no joy and rejoicing, his own people did not receive him. So what we would expect to be the good news of incarnation ends up as a tragedy of human rejection of God. Like, how could the true light come into the world and the world not recognize him? How could they fail to see him? Well, obviously, it's a result of blindness, a result of darkness. We need light because we live in darkness, the domain of darkness because of sin, the fallen realm. And we love the darkness because our deeds are evil. Russell read it earlier, John 3, 19 to 21. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I'm sure many of you could map your own testimony into these verses. I know for me, there are things that I did as a kid and a teenager that I was ashamed of, I was guilty of, and I was afraid that they would come to light. And so I was locked, I was kind of chained in the darkness because I feared stepping out into the light because I'd be exposed and I'd have to deal with it. 
Thankfully, God's grace broke through that and overcame all of that fear and brought me out. So it was clear if there's anything changed in my life, it's not because I know what I'm doing. It's because these works have been carried out in God. And I'm sure many of you can give testimony to the same thing. The world is characterized by darkness. The world, when John uses the term the world, he's not referring to just the third rock from the sun or the material universe. He's referring to the created order in its fallenness, its rebellion against God. Like John 3.16, when it says, God so loved the world, doesn't mean, oh, his love is so wide and broad. Well, it is, but it's speaking of how merciful his love is because the world is so bad and dark. So the word of God, lamp for our feet, light for our path, the word of God, capital W, Jesus, is the light of God in our souls, opening our eyes, illumining us from the inside out, setting us free, making us new. Charles Wesley said it so well in And Can It Be, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So we should say, and can it be, we should witness to the grace of God this morning and praise him for setting us free from slavery to darkness into the light. And if you are still in darkness, if you're still kind of shackled and bound in fear, like you don't want to be exposed, you can be set free this morning. God so loved not the world in its airbrushed, you know, sentimentality and sweet, no, in its blackness and darkness and brokenness. He came, he sent his son, Jesus came to set people free from slavery to sin and death and hell. And he can do it for you. Amazing love. How can it be that this would happen? So his own people at that time may not have received him, but he came nonetheless and he died and he did it so that he might receive us. So they didn't receive him, but he did it so that he could receive us. Point number four, the reception and the right, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, whether Jew or Greek or, you know, whatever the ethnic background, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So his own people, Jews, rejected him. But that tragedy of rejection isn't the last word. The grace of reception and belief is held out to us. This is where our text has been taking us, kind of like rushing us to this conclusion all along. John's witness is aimed at belief. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John wrote his gospel for the same reason. 
God so loved the world, the dark, rebellious, wicked world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. This life, new life as a child of God, born of God, it's not the result of any human initiative. It's only by sheer divine miracle. Look at verse 13. Born not of blood. Okay, so literally it's bloods. So you can think this picture of bloods, bloodlines, mixing in marriage. The whole point is that natural descent, ethnic heritage are irrelevant to being in this family. Not of the will of the flesh, sexual desire, human decision, nor of the will of man, a husband's initiative. No, none of that. Born of God. So you can see chapter 3, you know, John 1, 1 to 18 is like this concentrated, dense nutshell, and it gets unfolded and unpacked throughout the rest of the gospel. And we see lots of those themes in chapter 3. He said to Nicodemus, Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Spiritual rebirth. We were dead, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. So we need to be made alive together with Christ and saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And when you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you are a child of God. You're given the right to change of status. It's an incredible privilege by his grace, by his mercy, to become a part of the family of God. An incredible right that is given. Change of status. Incredible privilege and authorization, you could say. That same word for right is used in Revelation 22, 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Or think about Galatians 4. We're talking about the grace and the glory of adoption here, being adopted into God's family. And that is all over the place in the New Testament. Galatians 4, 4 to 7, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Here we go, incarnation right here. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We can cry out, Abba, Father. He's our heavenly father now because of God's grace. We're in a new family. We have new life. We've been born again. So you're no longer a slave, no longer a slave to sin, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So now we've arrived at where our text has been kind of carrying us, pushing us all along, pressing us to verses 12 and 13. And so what should we do? Well, Christian brother or sister, let me say it this way, and it, and it rhymes and it's a little bit cheesy, but maybe that'll make it stick, kind of like those terrible commercials that are really cheesy and you can't get them out of your head. You know, 800-588-3200 or something like that, you know. Sorry, I don't mean to be trite. What I'm saying is we need things to stick. So you and I, we should delight in the right that is ours to receive the light. 
or when we receive light. Sorry, I didn't say that right. So we should delight in the right that is ours because we have received the light. Okay, so in earthly families, you don't become a child by living like your father wants you to in order to earn his love, and then you become a child. You become your father's child, part of the family, by virtue of your birth or by virtue of adoption. In both cases, it's a gift bestowed on you, not something that you have to earn or deserve. In the same way, our new birth makes us God's children. Our adoption by his grace is what makes us God's children, not our efforts, not our works. So J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, has a really great chapter toward the end called Sons of God, and it's on adoption. I'm going to read several quotes from it to help us to delight in the right that is ours because we have received the light. All right, so here we go. Sonship to God is not a universal status into which everyone enters by natural birth, but a supernatural gift which one receives through receiving Jesus. The gift of sonship to God becomes ours not through being born, but through being born again. Sonship to God then is a gift of grace. It is not a natural, but an adoptive sonship. So he, asks, he says, makes this statement. I think this is worth pondering. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And then he quotes from the Westminster Confession, kind of a definition and description of adoption in the Westminster Confession. This is dense, but it is sweet. So, like, I'm going to read slow. Try to savor this. Try to let it sink in. There is much to delight in here. All those who are justified, God gives in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number, the number of the redeemed, and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. They have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness. They're enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied. He has compassion on his children, right? They're protected. They're provided for and chastened by him. We're disciplined by our father because he loves us. Yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Is there anything to delight in there? There's a lot to delight in there. There are Lots of ways to speak of the salvation that's ours in Jesus, right? There's justification. That's a legal, judicial term, right? So we were guilty, and because of Jesus' righteousness in our place, there's a great exchange. He takes our guilt, and we receive his righteousness, and we are declared righteous. We are justified. So there's that way to describe salvation. There's redemption, right? It's an economic term speaking of debt paid so that you're set free. There's propitiation. It's a worship term speaking of appeasing the wrath of the deity. And God actually appeased his own wrath by absorbing it in his son because of his great love. 
But the greatest, is this true? I'd encourage you to think about it. The greatest is adoption. So to be right with the judge is a great thing, but it's not particularly relational. In fact, all of the three words I mentioned, justification, redemption, propitiation, in a sense, they're all means to the end of restored relationship. Adoption is a familial term, speaking of the love of God the Father to choose us and welcome us into his family, that we would be his beloved children, that he would be our loving Father forever. We are his heirs, co-heirs with Christ. We are heirs of God. Everything belongs to us. We're welcome into close, affectionate, loving relationship with God the Father, the great God of the universe, the King of the universe. So whether you're from a good home or a bad home, you may be from a broken home, you may not have a home and a family, feel like you're all alone, you may not have a father, you may never have heard I love you growing up, your home could have been unstable and chaotic and unsafe and full of turmoil. And all of that instability and all of that insecurity can create all manner of trouble in us. But this is not what it's like to be in God's family. There is utter security and unshakable stability which can have all kinds of wonderful effects on our soul if it sinks in. Our Father is perfectly wise. Your Heavenly Father is perfectly wise. He is entirely good. And the nature of your adoption itself secures your final preservation and eternal joy. He doesn't lose any on the way. So we can delight in the right that is ours, the status, the privileges that are ours because we've received the light. A couple more quotes by Packer here. Adoption by its very nature is an art of free, I'm sorry, I think that might be act, act of free kindness to the person adopted. If you become a father by adopting a son or daughter, you do so because you choose to, not because you were bound to. Similarly, God adopts because he chooses to. Anybody feel unwanted, unworthy, left out? God chose you. The one whose opinion matters more than anyone else, he said, I want you. Similarly, God adopts because he chooses to. He had no duty to do so. He wasn't obligated. He need not have done anything except about our sins except punish us as we deserve, but he loved us, so he redeemed us and forgave us and took us as his sons and daughters and gave himself to us as our father. We can delight. We should delight. Let's delight in the right that is ours because we've received the light, and we've received the light by his grace. So he gets all the glory from him and through him and to him are all things. One more quote by Packer. God receives us as sons and loves us with the sin. This might be hard for us to believe. God receives us as sons and loves us with the same steadfast affection with which he eternally loves his beloved only son. Do you believe that? Do you think that might make a difference on Monday morning? There are no distinctions of affection in the divine family. We are all loved 
just as fully as Jesus is loved. We are in Christ. It's like a fairy story. The reigning monarch adopts waifs and strays to make princes of them. But praise God, it's not a fairy story. It's hard and solid fact founded on the bedrock of free and sovereign grace. This and nothing less than this is what adoption means. No wonder John cries, behold what manner of love that we should be called children of God and that's what we are. 1 John 3. When once you understand adoption, your heart will cry the same. If your heart isn't crying out with this, oftentimes is the case, what do we need to do? We need to delight in the right the privileges, the benefits, the status, all that is ours, because by God's grace, we've received the light. So as the Advent candle burns this Christmas, literally or metaphorically, could you benefit? Could I benefit? Could we benefit from reminding ourselves of who we are? Think of who you are. See what love, what kind of love the Father has given to you that you should be called a child of God. And so you are. If you've trusted in Jesus, turn from your sins, trusted in Jesus. If you have received the light to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. So have you, have you received the light? then delight in the right that is yours. We should be like scheming about how to keep this like front and center in our minds and our hearts this week and ongoing. Like just think of the access you have to the Father. You can approach the throne of grace with confidence anytime. And think of the character of the Father to whom you pray. Matthew 7, 11, remember Jesus says, if, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Think of the inheritance that is yours. Think of how bright your future is. Again, we could apply this in a million different ways, but like, don't you start to spiral because you feel like your best days are behind you. You despair of a brighter future. It just looks like, you know, catastrophe all ahead. Everything stinks. You're thinking, you're actually forecasting, you know, all these fears and anxieties, and it, and it just completely wrecks you, and you go like this. What if you actually believed this inheritance that's yours that nothing and no one can take from you. It can't perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you, and I'm kept for it until the day I die and enter into it, and Jesus is coming back, and it's all gonna be made new, and like, think of how bright your future is. Think of how you are loved. Think of how safe you are, ultimately, in Christ. That can help with our fears and our insecurities and our trials and so forth here. So um, the other day, what was this, Friday? Yes, it was Friday. Um, heard that Marion, she had had a really a significant size gallstone and um, 
Jean and Beryl and Diane and Chris were all caring for her and there and you know they're trying to figure out what the situation is and realize that she's gonna have to have surgery she's 99 um, she doesn't have a cardiologist my first question is like how's her heart gonna handle this she doesn't even have a cardiologist she's not on any blood thinners okay well that's good so you know um, I need to not make this story not too long but in visiting her one of the things I shared with her and obviously her faith is strong um, what a beautiful witness and testimony to all of us she has been and continues to be um, but I remember hearing one, one uh, I think it was David Palson one time say before a serious surgery at which he could die he said well I'm either going to wake up to the loving face of my fam- faces of my family or I'm going to wake up and see the loving faith of, face of my savior like you're safe and secure so I shared that with Marion, and she's comforted and encouraged by that. Only if it sinks in and it's real to us will that be grace, peace, encouragement. So we need to, day in and day out, you know, some trials are coming 5, 10, 15 years down the road for us that you're delighting in all that's yours in Christ tomorrow is going to prepare you for we need to delight in the right that is ours because we've received the life